Well, good morning, Faith Covenant. There we go. Thank you for engaging with one another. Uh, did anybody meet someone they didn't know? I uh, see. Okay, a couple hands. Did you already forget their name? Uh, see, there, if we honestly check. And my name, again, if you missed it earlier, is Alex. I, again, I'm one of the pastors here. And you might not know this, but before I moved to Florida, I spent the previous 13 years of my life either in rural Missouri or urban Colorado. And the similarity between those two is what kinds of things the people wear. So there were lots of jokes at my expense about how I would finally fit in with the, uh, the stage decor. And I, someone actually had the nerve to ask me if I was going to wear my Eddie Bauer vest. And I wisely didn't ask them which one, since I actually have two of them. Uh, and then just to throw things off, I went the total opposite direction. But actually, I've, I've hidden it. This is an Eddie Bauer shirt and a Columbia so it came out a little bit in the outfit, uh, but we didn't come together to talk about outfits or necessarily stage decor. Uh, again, it was really, really nice to be together, uh, together last week, all of us under one roof. Again, just not really this roof. And as impractical as sending three services in a row to win Dixie may seem, it does provide some real illustrations for much of what we are going through in the book of James. Hopefully you'll recall that as we go through James, we are finding incredibly practical information about what it looks like to be a Christian. Sometimes, at least by the world's standards, those things are rather impractical. And that is why we're saying James is a practical guide for an impractical life. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about temptation, how that leads to sin. And that was contrasted, if you remember, with the good things that come from the Father. These are good things that in the context of the chapter actually are coming out of trials and tribulations. I don't know about you, but those are not the places that I'm looking for the good things of God to come from. But... But we have to remember as followers of Christ that living this impractical life we are called to results in some impractical places and ways that God's glory is revealed in us and through us as we live the true life of a believer. And in light of this reality that James is pushing us toward, we ended two weeks ago talking about being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. In our humanness, these are not the things we tend to do when things aren't going our way. And so, in shutting down our ears, we instead give voice to complaints, discomforts, grumblings, and even our anger at situations in our life or the world, in that we so often shut out the good things that the Father would otherwise bring through those circumstances. So we ended in that place last time, and it's actually that exact same thread that we're picking up today as we start in James chapter 1 in verse 19. We read there, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. 
When Pastor Kevin told me that I was, I was going to be able to start this sermon with verse 19, I was so happy because verses 19 and 20 are, are the verses that my kids are memorizing right now. And, and we use these little songs children's ministries put together to help them memorize. So does anyone else use the songs to memorize scripture? It really gets stuck in your head. It's, it's hard for me to read these without reading in the cadence of the, of the song. But, but I heard this story from my wife that, that it was an evening like so many other evenings during past bedtime in my house, meaning the kids were supposed to be asleep, but they weren't even actually in their beds. And, and as my wife tells the story, I, I wasn't home at the time. She walked in after about half an hour of their shenanigans. And I know you'd find it hard to believe, but she was a little bit frustrated. Uh, I wasn't there, so I can't comment on how that frustration manifested itself. But as she told me this story, she said, I went in and I started, you know, getting on to the kids. And my son, bless his heart, almost three years old, piped up, Mom, you're not being slow to anger. <laughs> I, my opinion, my opinion is that 30 minutes of waiting to drop the hammer is fairly slow. Uh, so if I had been there, like that would have been the moment any frustration I did have would have transferred itself fully onto the plate of anger. Like I wasn't angry, now I am. My wife conveniently ended the story there, so I'm not sure what happened afterwards. <laughs> but I do know that my kids were asleep when I got home. So <laughs> I don't want to water this passage down too much, but, but certainly in, in the Christian world, as we look at this verse, we tend to apply it to a number of circumstances, including how quick you are to speak in anger to your children. Though in this chapter, again, it's more closely linked with the deeper trials and tribulations of life. You'll remember even further back near the beginning of this series, how we, we talked about consider it all joy. Like all those difficulties, trials, tribulations, consider it joy. And what a challenge. If you miss that, you know, all our sermons are on YouTube and you can go back and look at. But as we read through this, we begin to see that living a life before God's, God leads us to impractical or unnatural responses. In a world where social media and news and every outlet around us invites us to have our own voice and opinion thrown out to all and quickly, our first response as Christians should often be listening. And so let's use this example. But when we're offended, and let's assume for a moment we're right to be offended, like we're offended by something, and what we learn is anger isn't really the first response we should offer. Because quick and slow are words that indicate speed, but they also indicate priority. What is your first impulse? And, and if I'm honest with you, I'm still working on these quite a bit, and, and I am getting better. Like, like, I still, can I confess this, that I struggle with anger a little bit? I struggle but I'm not as quick to speak <laughs> as I used to be. It's progress. And so sometimes I manage to sort out the mess that's inside me for, before it comes out. Or sometimes I do speak, but at least I'm turning to the Lord and hopefully in turning to the Lord and, and speaking to the Lord that my, my words will then afterwards be tempered a bit. I'm a work in progress in church. 
We're all works in progress. James is setting the bar. And James furthermore contends here that the result of the word spoken in anger, the word spoken quickly, this is unlikely and in fact will not lead to the righteousness that God desires. He falls in line with well-established prophets and sages of the ancient world and saying so. He, he maybe, and in fact probably has, a verse like Ecclesiastes chapter 7, 9 in his head, where it says, Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Fools. We are left to see that our anger, our quick word, regardless of how well-intended or well-deserved we perceive it, that impulse, that response is not going to lead to this righteousness. It is so much more likely that we will simply be sitting, speaking vindictively in a defensive way, in a way that tears down or even a way that propagates untruth. Because in the heat of our anger and frustration to accurate, accurately represent facts with our emotions and words, boy, doing that takes a serious hit in that moment. And we are fools when we are like that. Does God desire us to pursue his righteousness? Yes, it is impractical as it may seem, as unnatural in our human sin, this may seem here, James guides us by telling us not to step off onto the path of quick words and anger. This is a reminder, this is a warning given from someone who is a shepherd of the early church. He's giving direction because so many have recently moved from darkness to light. They have accepted Christ, but they are very familiar with these old paths, these old ways, and this path of anger and quick speech. And that, for so many, and even us today, is a comfortable path an easy path to walk, but it doesn't lead to righteousness. And that path is our old self and not who we are now. So James says, therefore get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. So you've received the word, the gospel, you have new life and hope, and this will produce righteousness. So get rid of that old stuff. That idea of getting rid of in the old language is actually an idea of changing clothes, but specifically taking off the old, filthy, beggar's clothes. That's the idea that's actually carried by this. And in our sinful ways, we see our are so often almost like that really old, comfortable pair of pants that you, they're just so nice to wear and put on once in a while. But you've realized that there's holes starting to appear in places that are inappropriate for you to wear them in public. But they're so comfortable and you love to wear them. They fit you perfectly. That's, they're just natural, like they're, they're conformed to you. And you've had them so long, you can't quite get rid of them. You might not even wear them that often. But there's still, you, some of you have these pair of pants in a drawer. Like, don't pretend like you don't have this pair of pants somewhere. Or if you don't have them now, you've had this pair of pants at some point in your life. And, and Luke 6.45 says, The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So we see, like, what we put on 
reveals what's inside of us, that our response and what we say can reveal something good or something bad. The way we embrace the things of this world, comfortable or not, reveals what is in our heart. So are we embracing things in a way that reflects that we've accepted the word planted in us? Or are we showing the world the old, shabby, sinful ways of our past? James is saying, you've got something else planted in you. You've got the word. Accept it. Embrace it. And when you speak, that is what should be heard. This, by the way, is the language that's used throughout the entire scripture about how God changes us so often from the inside out. Even the Israelites as a nation, which if a nation could be accused of holding on to their old selves with both hands and not reflecting what God wants, it's definitely them. And so God, through the prophet Ezekiel, says to them, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your you I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. The good news is that God is with us and working in us through this process. He brings us life from the inside out and he does not abandon us in that process, but he is with us and his spirit is literally in us now. And Christians who have been born again demonstrate that the word has transformed them by their humble acceptance of that word as their authority and guide for life. This word This word is a practical guide for a life that the world would say is so, so impractical. And and here again, the good news. You have it. You have this word in you. The imagery of a plant taking root is presented. And this is the place we should be nurturing and growing ourselves in. So what do we do? What do we do with this word, this hope that we receive? Well, verse 22 gives us the answer to that. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. I mean, it's pretty clear. Is that clear enough? I mean, it's <laughs> do what it says. I mean, if you only listen, you deceive yourself. And, and by the way, this isn't deception based on ignorance. Because sometimes that happens. This isn't deception based on ignorance, but on inaction. The idea here is that the word separate from doing is not the reflection of the planted word we are supposed to have. The picture is off. This is the proverbial practice what you preach. Like like you have this, you know this word. Are you practicing it? You can tell me what it is. Are you doing it? Jesus taught the same thing when he shared the parable about the rich or, or the wise and the foolish builders recorded in Matthew 7, where he said, therefore... Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man. The fool appears again, who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. You will be lying to yourself if you believe listening to the word is enough to be safe. 
all those trials and temptations we talked about in previous weeks, if you want to put yourself in an even better position to withstand them and be joyful and to see what good is God doing through these things, do the word. Practice the word. You will be lying to yourself if you believe that being here right now, hearing the word of God every Sunday is enough. If that's the only box you're checking, that is like building on sand. You have a structure given to your life, but, but you're not doing anything with it. And this challenges us because, because we are in so many ways trained to believe that Sunday morning service, morning devotion, small group studies, and things like that is the bulk of all that we need to do as Christians. And James is definitely saying you do need to do these things. We need to hear the word. We need to put ourselves in spots to understand and help that word to grow. But proximity to the word does not create righteousness. That is like gathering a bunch of supplies to build a house. You have them. They're all right there, and you keep adding to the pile year after year, but then you never actually build it. You never actually put it together, even though you have this foundation. And James says, what's the point? You can't say you have a house just because you have a foundation. That would be deceiving yourself. And so it is with the word when we hear it, when we've taken it in. If we do not do what it says, it is like we have a foundation. And we're telling the world we've got this house built on the foundation. But actually we are deceiving ourselves. James illustrates it this way in verse 23. He says, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Now, the fact that it's a man looking in the mirror aside, we won't get into that. Um, this is the most ridiculous illustration, isn't it? Like, if you got up in the morning, and let's suppose you, the first mirror you're going to see is in your bathroom. And you, you go into the bathroom, you look in the mirror and discover that something must have bit you right here while you were sleeping overnight. Big purple lump. You ever have like inflammation where it's like you can feel the pulse where it's inflamed? Like, yeah, we're going to go there today. Like, like if you see that in the middle of your forehead, let's imagine you got your business person. You've got three Zoom calls that morning. You're, you're school age. You have to go to school. I mean, you're, you're canceling Zoom meetings. You're on your way to ER. You're begging your parents, don't send me to school today with this thing. I'm like, you're going to do something. You're not going to walk away from the mirror and forget what you just looked like. You're going to do something about it. You know what you look like, and it changes what you do that day. For me, I worry when it comes to the word that the deception of ourselves can continue because we walk away and forget what we saw. Or when we do see ourselves, we don't even recognize that it's us. I heard this story about a pioneer couple, the Old West, uh, really separated from everybody, didn't have access to many things. A trader comes through one day and they're trading. And it's, it's that way that the, that the husband got a mirror and he didn't even know what a mirror was. And looking at the mirror, a small little thing, he saw himself and said, I never knew someone painted a picture of daddy. It's sweet, right? 
This is a treasure. So he goes and hides it. His wife is extremely suspicious of him because he's a trapper and he disappears for long amounts of time. And so she sees him going and hiding something. And he thinks this is some gift from some woman he's been running around with. So he's off hunting and she goes and tries to find what it is that he's hidden. And she finds it and she looks at it and she says, so that's the old hag he's been running around with. We need to know what we're looking at. And when it's ourself, we need to understand it. The word planted in us shows us a picture, certainly, of what our old self looks like, whatever ugliness that holds. But we have to realize that's me and I have to change. I have to give up the, the comfortable pair of jeans with, with the holes where they <laughs> shouldn't be because it's not right for me to continue to wear that. I have something else and James says, yeah, you have, you have the word. The word just doesn't show you the ugliness, but also shows you what the beauty of who you are can be. He says in verse 25 as he goes on, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So here's the contrast. Here's the payoff for, for those who, who aren't fools or fakes, but live out their faith. You look into the perfect law that gives freedom. James is referencing the freedom we have through Christ. That he doesn't come to overturn the law, but he fulfills the law. When we read Paul or Old Testament, the law refers to the Mosaic law. Here is this law now through Christ. You have this, but you're not simply looking at what you have, but you keep looking. And when you perceive rightly what you are supposed to look like, you don't forget it, but you do it. You know, what we say, our, our, the mission of the, our church, helping people look like Jesus every day and in every way. That's what this is talking about. Maybe one more illustration. Did, did any of you assemble, you know, Lego sets when you were kids? Oh, well, I mean, some of you did. I, I, I appreciate an amen on that. And in fact, I, I should say, I think it's an adult toy as well. So if you still assemble Lego sets... I think that's great. But you know, the idea of Legos, that as you're assembling it, how do you get all those pieces to look like the finished product? Well, you keep looking at the pictures. And you figure out what is next, and then you do it. And you figure out what is next, and you do it. You figure out what is next, and then you do it. And sometimes you look at the instructions, you grab the right piece. You know you've got the right piece, and then you, you know what, you have to go back to the instructions because you already forgot about where it's supposed to go or what you're supposed to do. And, and that is absolutely fine because when you keep the instructions there and you don't go away from the instructions, you are on the path to finishing that Lego set. You're going to build it. Either way is fine as long as you keep the instructions right there. And that is us. As we look to Christ and we look to his word, we don't put it away. We don't walk away. In fact, we keep checking it and doing things step by step. That in our lives, representing a Christ and what he wants for us requires us to stay in this word. To, to value this word that's been planted into us. James says to stare intently. And when we do, this is a place, James says, where blessings will flow. When we are doing 
the things we see in the word. The blessing is not simply in hearing, it's in what we do. And if we remember the old path that is, you know, quick to anger and speech that doesn't lead to, lead to righteousness, here we do start to see where the righteousness comes from. It should remind us actually of Paul in Romans 2.13 where he says, it, For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but as those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Now again, James and Paul sometimes use law a little bit differently, but the idea here is the exact same thing. It's in the doing that righteousness is found. So at this point, you could say, all right, James, preacher of the old, old, you know, early church, can you tell us specifically something that you would have us do? As he wraps up, and we wrap up this chapter, we see that he does offer some things to us with one final admonition. He says in verse 26, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves. Again, deception. And their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Notice that in neither verse 26 or verse 19 does James say that we don't talk. He's not making the recommendation as Christians that we sit down and shut up. <laughs> this isn't about, uh, or this is about controlling what we say and how quickly we say it. And he further nuances or brings this imagery of reins into the, into the picture. Reins which would be used to steer an animal such as a horse, but here it is your tongue. So you don't simply become slower to speak, you actually speak with more intentionality about where your words are leading and pointing others. And he says, like, if you can't do that, you're in danger of your religion just becoming worthless. And you can actually see, as hard as that statement may be, that there's truth to that, that when you don't control your words, there's real danger. When you get into fights and you share quick words so often, we are not reflecting much of anything about the word that is planted in us what we are witnessing to or who we are witnessing to in those moments and, and what they see in us in those moments is often something that the world would see nothing of value from us, God's people. And that, that's a worthless religion. If it's not a witness and an effective tool in this world, it is a worthless religion. Proverbs 10, 19 says, sin is not ended by multiplying words. So again, in the wisdom of the ancients, don't just let the jumble of emotion and words pour out. If you are trying to avoid sin and want to maintain your witness so that others would look at your, you know, your religion and believe that there might actually be something here, not keeping control of your speech, like that's not the way. In fact, that's more likely to lead us to sin. All right, James. All right, James. What, what do we do? Give me some recommendations. There's the three things. Do these three things. Look after orphans. Look after widows. Keep yourself from being polluted by the world. In the ancient world, the idea of caring for orphans and widows was, by the way, taken very literally. But also when someone would say that, it was almost a, a category, a statement of a category of people. These 
were people who represented the most vulnerable and helpless, those who were not often positioned in society to help themselves. And whatever you may think about social welfare systems, with no welfare system whatsoever, these individuals were regularly susceptible to extreme poverty, to persecution, and being taken advantage of daily. So in the ancient world, to say care for orphans and widows does not simply mean those two groups, but those who are like that as well. So is this the sum of what the word would have us do? It's certainly not. But James suggests that this is a great practical start. And furthermore, in doing so, this is proof that the word being planted in us and the conviction we have as a result is leading to action and our witness in the world to the greatness of Christ is established. For this reason, we cannot miss the significance of the moment we shared, if you were able to, last week. That while not every recipient of food from Florida Dream Center is a widow or orphan, the demographics most heavily influenced and helped through that ministry are some of those not well positioned in society to change their circumstances. Regardless of the reasons for their poverty or for their hunger, we by doing, provide evidence of an inner transformation to each other and a lost world in engaging in ministry to the least of these. What you got last Sunday was simply a taste of how easy it could be to do. And when you may never you know, do those sorts of things like we did last week, we do know that the word is clear about who we are to care for, who he calls us for. And now James said, yes, people like that. Now you've done it. You've taken the word and you've done something. And you don't have to go on from last Sunday and forget what that looked like. Actually, you remember what that looked like. And you start thinking, how do I nourish and help this word planted in me to grow? I would challenge you to say to yourself, I have this word planted in me. And I'm not content to sit back and gather supplies for a house that I have no intention to build. I'm not satisfied with knowing about God's will and the world never getting to see it in action through me. I want to know the blessing that comes from doing. I want a world to see Christ in me as I react to circumstances in my life, school or workplace in ways that are impractical and glorious, doing the things that leads to God's righteousness and not my own. I want to be the hands and the feet of Christ to touch and to move to the places and people that God calls me to. Yet he calls me to care for, to love, to preach to, to be with. And the good news is you don't have to wait for us to surprise you on a Sunday morning, a year from now or two years from now to do this again. You could start volunteering at Florida Dream Center once a month, twice a month. Maybe you could do it with your family, with your life group. You've seen where the food came from. You know where it's going. Maybe get more deeply involved in the community that way and talk to people about it. You know maybe the person, if you're in school, the person who's disconnected, who's in Several of your classes, they're probably lacking support of any kind. This is the kid that you see who just gets walked over again and again, who gets ridiculed, who probably needs some hope right now. Do you, do you know that kid? Do you know that kid? When we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, that we serve a God 
And the verse goes, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. What do we do in the face of the word that we've received? We hear the word. What do we do? And by the way, you can replace kid with coworker or family member. And you can replace the word school with workplace or home. And the illustration remains rock solid in the word. So here's the challenge. Here's the exhortation. How about this being a discussion this week, maybe in your lunch group right after this, in your life group with your friends who are in Christ, ask where the widows and orphans, the afflicted, the impoverished and troubled, the helpless and persecuted, where are they in your life? Who are they? They could be your neighbors, coworkers, people in school, someone you drive by every day, walk by. Who are they? I bet you have names. And you'll find that that is a discussion about true religion because it's moved beyond the heard word and moves to the practiced word, the lived word, the word that is a witness in this world. And then if that discussion is not thrilling enough, where is the world polluting your life? Remember he adds that? That's the third thing. Where is the world polluting your life, your family's life, your workplace, your school? You keep... You keep yourself from the pollution of the word. That implies action. You're doing things and taking steps to keep yourself. By the way, this isn't James saying to not be part of the world. It's not an argument for all of us to start a monastery, to take vows of solitude. It's not even an argument for you to give up Facebook for Lent in the coming year. That's not what this is. This is him saying, how are you keeping yourself from, you know, the... You know those TV shows and movies that are polluting? Music, media. Where is their pollution and what are you doing to keep yourself from being polluted? How do you keep the images that stir up lust from your eyes? Are you doing something about that? You know what the word says, right? When, when you find yourself drawn into inflammatory or derogatory conversations about a person or maybe online that so often lead to you speaking more and more quickly than you should, how are you keeping yourself from those moments as the pollution of the world enters in? Are you enticed by riches and wealth? Where's the pollution? Are you comfortable with sins that have been sanitized by society, made acceptable in the eyes of culture? Well, what does the word say? We spend a lot of time in the word. And so the good news is we have a lot of practical questions to guide us in a life that ends up being very impractical because we're constantly surrounded by this stuff. As we close... I think the point becomes pretty clear. If you found yourself to be a hearer of the word and not a doer, James is making this personal and he's challenging whether your faith is valid. The solution he intends, though, I want to tell you, is not for you to despair. I don't do enough. It's not for you to be discouraged. Like, I can't do it. It's just simply this. Take a step. Again, widows and orphans, common you know where they are, and you can come up with a name. Take a practical step into doing. And I know for some of you today, you're already doing things. You're living out your faith in so many ways. 
But I also know that there's probably people here today who need to take this literally and you need to do it today. You need to start taking steps to do the things you know the word of God calls you, the things that you know will reflect Christ to others in your life. Maybe that's praying with someone, sharing comfort with someone. Maybe you've been in the word and you've seen sins identified, but it's like you're looking at the mirror and refusing to recognize yourself. Don't do that anymore. Look, recognize, remember, repent of your own sins. And if you need encouragement, If you need encouragement and more illustrations of what doing can look like, it is a unique timeline of events in our church that we did this thing last week. And tonight at 630, we're going to open the doors to this room. And people who have been on mission trips, who have gone and served outside these walls, doing things or sharing stories about how God moves, how God uses that, what that looks like. And furthermore, we are actually having representatives from both Florida Dream Center and New Life Solutions here, if that is something that interests you. But whether it interests you or not, the command is still the same. The expectation is still the same, that we do something. Or maybe you already know, you've thought of the name, I know. I know someone I'm supposed to be engaging where I'm more practically the hands and feet of Christ and you're not sure how. And that's a conversation I'd love to have with you to talk about what is it you can do. Can I help encourage you specifically in that relationship? And I'll push it. I'll push it a little bit. Kind of like I'm pushing, you should really be here tonight. I I really mean that. 6.30 p.m., please be here. But the reason we push it It's because we are 100% convinced that the blessing of doing it is worth it. Doing the word, not just hearing it, is worth it. 